All right. Well, let's turn in our Bibles then, if you have a Bible, to Matthew chapter 5, to the great and wonderful Sermon on the Mount food for our souls, so wonderfully and simply spoken and yet so deep as we've been learning over the past few weeks. And today we just uh, cover the third beatitude, verse 5, which reads, Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And if your version says gentle, I prefer the word meek. So I'm going to use the word meek. And and it's because of that word meek, I would suggest to you that of all the Beatitudes Jesus spoke, this one is the most ridiculed. You'll see it on uh, t-shirts. You'll see it on bumper stickers. For instance, you'll see, blessed are the meek, for they shall be squashed. You'll you'll see, blessed are the strong, for they shall inherit the earth now. A few years ago, blessedarethemeek.com sold women's fashions that were everything but meek. Today, that website is blessed are the defunct, because they are thankfully no more. In spite of this not-so-subtle campaign to discredit meekness, In verse 5, Jesus commends meekness as highly desirable, something that you should want, even if it costs you a great amount, if for no other reason than for the reward promised in this beatitude. Look at the end of the verse. They shall inherit the earth. And so with all these words kind of simply grouped together with such a great promise, let's take some time together this morning to explore, to be ministered to, and to be challenged by this amazing, wonderful beatitude. And like the other days when we've looked at these together, we're simply dividing it into three sections. There is the group, that's the meek. There is the condition, that's the blessed or blessed. And then there's the promise at the end, they shall inherit the earth. Let's start off together with the group the people called the meek, the gentle. And as I mentioned to you, I think that the word gentle, as it's used in my version, but most English translations of the Bible use the word meek. And I think that's important that they use the word meek for the original word prouse, prouse, because gentle is too positive of a word. You're a nice person if you're gentle. You're meant to be, when you grow up, a gentleman, And so there's nothing necessarily wrong with being gentle. No one really thinks ill of somebody who's gentle, but somebody who's meek, well, that's bad because meek rhymes with weak. Meek is a ridiculed term. It has a massive PR problem. I googled the word meekness, and it said this, the condition of being submissive, and then it gave an example All his best friends make fun of him for his meekness. See? It's got a PR problem from the start. A meek man is not in the world a respected man. A meek man almost has the connotation of somebody with more of a feminine disposition, not a manly guy. He's a Casper milquetoast individual. He's so mousy he would never voice his own opinion lest you get your feelings hurt or Even worse, he was ever misunderstood. He's the wallflower. He's the guy who hides behind mom's skirt. He's the meek guy. 
And I, I think the PR problem simply comes from one fact that God has always been in the business of making men and women meek. From deceiver Jacob, who was made into meek Israel, to Elijah and the prophets and everyone in between, all of those for whom, in whom God has worked in their lives, he has made all of them to be meek people. And so for us to understand this, I want to turn, have you turn to a few pages ahead in the Gospel of Matthew. Would you? Chapter 11. Chapter 11. Make your way to verse 28. It's always been, meekness has, God's way of redemption. Meek people are redeemed people. Redeemed people are meek people. And meek people take on meekness so that they can relate to this world redemptively. And it comes for us by enrolling in the school of Christ. Are you there? Verse 28 of Matthew 11. Join me in verse 28. Jesus invites you, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see in verse 29, he uses that word meek. Although my version uses the word gentle. I think they chose the word gentle because meek has such a bad PR problem. It just has this connotation that if people listen to it, they're just going to snicker at it. Like it's something that's bad. But it's, It's what most English translations use. I think it's the proper interpretation of the original word that Jesus used. I don't think that he was necessarily saying, I'm a gentleman. I don't think the Pharisees would have ever agreed to the fact that Jesus was a a proper gentleman. Would you? So he's saying here he's meek, and he's inviting you into his school to learn from him. And the encouraging thing about this is that since he invites you into his school, meekness is a choice you can make. You don't have to not be meek. It isn't beyond any of us who love Jesus Christ to be meek, a meek man, a meek woman. But I dare say that when the unbelieving heart hears this, come to me for I am meek and humble in heart, they likely think of Jesus as somebody who's kind of soft, kind of, you know, Kind of like the Pillsbury Doughboy, kind of gentle, meek thing. Kind of like, you ever, you ever notice how certain kinds of priests and clergymen speak with a lisp? You ever heard that? They actually learn that in their own little schools and canticles. Or maybe the unbelieving heart hears Jesus inviting you to become meek and pictures him in soft clothes. Who He was the kind of guy who carried baby lambs around in his arms all day long. Or even worse, Jesus, you know, he looked a lot like Fabio, don't you know? He spent most of the day combing out his long, blonde hair. That's kind of the picture, isn't it? It kind of derives from this idea of being meek and will-o'-the-wispy and soft and cuddly and not too dangerous at all. However, for your recommendation this morning, and in order to try to secure your interest in this passage even a little bit more, Meekness and its close cousin in this passage, humility, are the only character traits Jesus ever 
said resided in himself. The only traits that ever he said, he kind of self-identified to say, here, you be like this. You learn this from me. So I want you to ask yourself right now, what kind of man points to himself and says, I'm meek. Now you go and learn how to be meek from me. No one does that. Meekness by definition means pointing to someone else's, the pattern, and saying, hey, that person is meek. Go be like them. You never point to yourself and say, I'm meek. It's like pointing to yourself and saying, well, I'm, I'm pretty humble. You know, I've kind of written some books. And uh, have you read my book, The Ten Most Humble Men in the World and How I Met the Other Nine? It just doesn't work. You can't do that. And yet that is what Jesus is doing here. So maybe we need to change our minds about what meekness is all about. Let's do that by kind of looking at the same kind of passage here that Matthew puts together for us. Back your eyes up to verse 20 and check out these verses as we'll read through three or four verses here. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Well, here is a man who challenges impenitent people. Look at what he says in verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred, long, um, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. To just catch you up here to what Jesus is saying, he's telling the local cities there by the Sea of Galilee that if... He had come at an earlier point in history and had done the miracles among these Gentile cities that he had done among these Jewish cities. The people of those Gentile cities would have repented in sackcloth and ashes at their hardness of heart against God. Let's pick it up again in verse 22. Nevertheless, I say to you... It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. In other words, what he's telling the people of the cities that are right around, of filled with Jews on the Sea of Galilee there, is that the people who died years and years ago from these Gentile cities will have a much easier eternity of hell than you will. Does that match your definition of meekness? That a man would take it upon himself to declare to certain individuals the degrees of suffering that they shall have in hell forever as compared to other people? Just to make the claim itself, to say it, requires that such a man would have absolute knowledge of eternal matters, especially who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, and what the sufferings of hell and what the glories of heaven are in detail. Who is this man who says, come to me, I am meek and humble of heart? We're not done yet, beloved. Look at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, It would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Please understand, Sodom made San Francisco and Provincetown look positively righteous. ¿Qué pasa? ¿Qué tal? 
You know what I'm talking about? And Jesus is saying to the upright religious people who have seen his miracles, he's telling them that because you did not repent, you will actually have a hotter and worse Hades forever than the men of Sodom who got burned in fire and brimstone in Genesis 18 and 19. Beloved, this is meekness. This is all in the same section. Matthew lays this out for you. He says to you, consider this individual who speaks in such a way, who claims to know the issues of heaven and hell and all the individuals therein in either, and the degrees of suffering to which they will have compared to one another, at least in, he- in hell, and obviously the all total joys of glories of heaven. Imagine such a man inviting you to say, Come and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. Could you rise to that occasion? I dare say you could. In fact, I know you could. Because to be invited to meekness and to be invited to humility doesn't require us to put on and adopt something that we don't already natively and inherently have and are. We are by virtue of creation, and we are by virtue of, yes, our sins, in a posture where it is most appropriate for us to be invited in to come learn about meekness. Now, why would Jesus say these things to these people? He would say these things to these people in order to gain their repentance. If he just merely wanted to judge them and cast them into the netherworld of sufferings where they never stop, he could have done it right there and then. But no, they are living and they are hearing these words for the hope that they will come and be remorseful over their refusal to repent, over seeing his miracles, and then in their hearts trust him, honor him, realize that he is God's heaven-sent Messiah. So he has a redemptive meaning to these words, which is why he invites you and I to come and to be meek and humble so that we may relate like him to this world. You want to know why God hides himself from your sight? It's because he's meek. If he lets you see him, he'd have to kill you. He said to Moses in Exodus 33:20, "You cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live." So to follow Jesus Christ is to go to the school of God and to learn meekness. The reason then to be meek is to bring redemption to people, not to judge them. It was meekness and not nails that held Jesus fixed to the cross. You might remember the Jewish leaders came to Jesus when he was on the cross and they taunted his meekness. They said to him in front of everybody else, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Jesus had the power to deliver himself from the cross. The religious rulers were mocking him because they knew of his miracles. They knew that such a man would have had power to deliver himself from the cross, but Jesus would not come down. In fact, you won't hear a single word of retaliation from Jesus Christ when he's hanging on the cross. There's no self-vindication. Instead, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Peter's testimony in his first epistle in the New Testament speaks of Christ on the cross this way. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. In Jesus Christ, then, we have the preeminent meek man. This completely quashes the world's PR campaign to discredit meekness and to tell you that meekness means weakness. How strong is meekness? It glues an innocent man to a cross and punishes him for crimes he never committed and holds him there until he dies so that he can redeem the millions given to him by the Father in eternity past. Meekness, then, is the power to lose selfish regard for ourselves and to replace it with long-suffering patience for others, especially those who mistreat us. Meekness means never having to defend yourself when you're mistreated for Christ's sake. You can embrace the mistreatment. You can endure the mistreatment. It doesn't mean it hurts any less. Please don't think that. It hurts. In fact, by embracing it, you feel its pain far more than by yielding yourself to the quick temptation to get angry and lash out, by which means then the anger or the pain that you feel is released by sinning. No, but as you learn meekness by Christ, you learn to embrace grave difficulties that God sovereignly brings into your life and mine. And work out in our hearts the likeness to Jesus Christ. It's our self-will, it's our pride that retaliates when we are treated wrongly. The meek, meek person hands over to others the power to treat them rudely, to treat you snidely, to treat you dismissively like you don't matter when you're in a social context or some other context. And not only that, meekness provides you then the power to return blessing for cursing, a greeting for being passed over, mercy instead of judging them, and tenderness, and non-judgmentalism, and tolerance, and humility under pressure, under misunderstanding with your family, your in-laws people at work, children, parents. Meekness is then not something weak. Actually, meekness is immense power. Meekness can be compared to flowers at a public park that are lovely and fragrant and give everybody around who walks by a a wonderful odor and smell of spring and loveliness that's delicate and refreshing. And those flowers are put there for everybody to enjoy. But a bunch of teenage boys come along to the park, and because they're teenagers, they go about stepping on the flowers and just totally devastate and kill all the flowers. And the flowers' only response is meekness to their being crushed. All they end up doing is releasing all of their fragrance all at once for everybody and even for those who crush them down. So meekness is not weakness. In fact, 
meekness could be called restrained power. Go ahead in the book of Matthew again, but this time go to chapter 26 with me, please. Chapter 26. And it's a long chapter, but we're just going to jump over to verse 51. Meekness is the opposite of taking vengeance. Meekness absorbs sin at great personal cost. It hurts. The meek person doesn't demand to have to be heard. The meek person doesn't demand his rights in this world. The meek person accepts the loss of rights for the promise of God is true, as it says that they shall inherit the earth. Now look at verse 51 here in Matthew 26. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword. That was Peter. And he struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. What's the context here? Jesus is going to get arrested and he's going to be brought to trial. It's similar to what Joey read earlier in John 18. Doesn't he look more intelligent these days, by the way, with the glasses? We should bestow on him a a kind of a preliminary PhD just for those. So here is the context, right? Jesus is getting arrested. Peter reaches out and, and he... and. Probably what happened, he's so bad, he's so bad with the sword. He probably went to get the guy's neck, but the slave ducked like this, and so Peter just caught the top of his head and just lopped off the ear, kind of thing. And then and then Jesus, you know, he he healed him. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How many is that? Anybody know? 72,000. Thank you. I heard nobody respond. 72,000 angels. And he said, I could have had them happen at my simple request. Now, he's about to get arrested, and then after the arrest, he knows exactly what's going to go on. He's already gone through the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows all about the tortures, and he knows all about the cross. So verse 54, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? In other words, his meekness is such that I can't, I can't go there because I have to ensure that scripture is fulfilled. Anyways, he heals the man's ear, which is an amazing little act of compassion, you know, kind of, kind of dovetailing with compassion today, aren't we? What an amazing act of compassion. He just takes the guy's ear, sticks it back on, no stitches, just heals it. Boop, no problem. No blood smatter. All set. You're fine. Go your way. No bill. <laughs> He's so wonderful. So here you have an amazing individual. And it shows you then that this is restrained power. Meekness is restrained power. It... it, it it's not that a meek person is too stupid to act any other way. It, it's that he actually submits to the injustice because if he doesn't submit to the injustice, something of greater value will be lost. It, it, it could be your clear conscience will be lost. If you're in a difficult situation and you're being mistreated, you're being not treated like the way you'd like to be treated, and you respond with anger, well, now you kind of feel like, well, I blew that one, didn't I? I can't come away from that one with a clear conscience that I reacted well. So maybe you, 
Maybe you lose a clear conscience there. Or you, maybe if you don't react to a situation by restraining yourself and by taking on meekness like Christ would and not, you know, taking out vengeance or anger, but you actually just absorb what's going on, then maybe you have a witness for Christ with that person at some point that day or in the future. You don't want to lose that. You don't, you just, you just want maybe even to just show to somebody what God's way is with sinners in this world. He's very patient. He's very compassionate. He's very slow to anger. Have you not noticed how slow he is to anger with people? So maybe you just want to show kind of what God is like by being rudely treated. It is such a powerful testimony of Christians over the ages to be this way. All of this then to say that meekness is not a lack of conviction. It's not a will-of-the-wisp mousiness. It's a courage and strength that comes from faith in God while you're enduring injustice, while you're being treated badly. Now, having just put you under the crush of the law by saying all those things and telling you that now you have to be absolutely perfect. Let me just explain something here. There isn't a one of us in this room to whom meekness comes naturally. Not even the kids. They may act meek because they're kids, but you know when you cross them, how they react. They do not bear it well. None of this comes to us naturally. There's not a one of us. In the ancient world of the t- Jesus time, meekness referred to the breaking of an animal, an ox or a wild horse or a donkey, all those kind of wild animals. They would have to be broken before they could ever become serviceable and usable by themselves. They were, frankly, quite useless. They just took up feed. So you had to take something that was by nature wild and unruly, and it had to be broken down to meekness in order to be usable. And so, too, in us, we have to be broken. Meekness has to come to us by an imposed discipline upon us. None of us by nature is born meek. It is a fruit of the saved man or woman of the Christian, the person with the Holy Spirit, the person in the new covenant, the person whom Christ has forgiven, the person in whom the Holy Spirit indwells, the person who has faith that Christ and Christ alone by dying on the cross and rising from the dead is my full standing in everything before God. That's the person who has the power to be meek. But nobody else actually has the power to be meek, not certainly in the way the Bible talks about. When we are proud, we stay back. Meekness is the lesson. It's kindergarten and it's college. The meek advance in the school of Christ. The proud stay back and they keep on getting the same angry elementary school teacher over and over and over again. The true goal, then, of a Christian is in this life is to become like Christ. And so, therefore, 
my beloved friends, your setbacks in life, your losses in life, your disappointments in life, your being sinned against in life, never blocked that goal of being meek. They are actually, all of them, your helpers along the way. When you are given money and when you are given praise and you are given accolades and you are treated better than you deserve, none of that helps you to become meek. You know, all the stuff that helps you become meek is all the kind of same stuff that helped Jesus become meek. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. It's an astounding thing. The things that help us become most like Christ are the things that hurt us inside often the hardest. Some of those sins that have been done against you, maybe when you were a child and powerless, or maybe a spouse that ran off with somebody else, or maybe you were fired, or maybe you were betrayed. Who knows? All those things understood as a believer, as a Christian, are your great helpers in the invitation that Christ gives to you to come to me, learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. Now, the meek person has rights, of course, just like everybody else, the right to be loved, the right to be respected, the right to fair treatment, but the meek person forfeits all those rights. I don't have to be loved. I don't have to be fairly treated. I don't have to be respected. All my rights, says the meek person, are in God. And I can trust him for them. And when they are kept from me, I can trust him for them as much as when I do enjoy them. But I cannot demand these rights. After all, Christ didn't demand his rights. I mean, we look at the God who crucified his son... And we think of the Son who endured it all with meekness and even with gratitude all the way to the end, even telling the Father how he trusted him. Into your hands I commit my spirit. We think of this amazing man trusting in the Lord all the way to the end by meekness. We ourselves are inwardly worked on by the Spirit of God telling us that is what I want for you too. That exact same disposition to trust God, to trust me when you are mistreated, to trust me when you're fired from a job unjustly, unrighteously, unmercifully, all these kind of things, and set you up to be the kind of person who no longer every day has to go through life telling himself, I must receive mercy. People need to respond to me with mercy. God needs to give me mercy. Why didn't that guy let me in? He cut me off. He, I need to be treated with mercy. And, and the blood pressure rises and everything else goes on. And that's just the simple stuff. In our marriages and our relationships with our family and our relationships with coworkers and our relationships with neighbors, the meek person doesn't have to be treated with mercy. He doesn't have to be treated with kindness. His view of the situation is how can I bring redemption to this life? How can I bring redemption to this situation? A meek wife doesn't complain to her husband. A meek husband doesn't demand submission from his wife, nor does he disengage from her because he feels hurt. A meek worker continues working even when his co-workers are sloughing off or 
when his boss mistreats him. Some of us, beloved, carry around a very long list of offenses. We've had them from past churches. We've had them from past pastors and church leaders. We've had bosses in the past. Maybe your boss at the present. We carry around a list of offenses from in-laws. Maybe the police didn't treat you right. You had school friends when you were a child who were mean and cruel to you. You've had betrayals happen in your life, offenses that happened years and years ago, and you know that when the memory is brought back about that person or that thing, the kind of feelings that create that empty pit in your stomach, uh, even the memory just stirs up resentment. But meekness is the overcoming power to overcome resentment and to not retaliate and to not be embittered. Rather, we view all of our pain and suffering through the unerring eye of faith. The unerring eye of faith that when it looks at Christ, sees with 100% perspicuity, clearness, clarity, the Son of God, Himself all majestic, bearing sin, being meek, carrying out the plan of the Father and the unerring eye of faith upon seeing him then yearns to be like him and yearns not to be like self who wants to retaliate, stand up for self, get vindicated. This is great power. This is the power of redemption in you personally, and this is the power of redemption in you toward others. So, by the way, something I mentioned a few weeks ago, this is one of the reasons why you want to go to church every Sunday. Really. Because pretty much every Sunday, there's going to be something to encourage you to be like Christ. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be prayed to. Uh, Hopefully, he's going to be mentioned during the sermon. Um, He's going to be held up. And, And so while you're going through your year and you're going through struggles and life's ups and downs, you're constantly every Sunday being brought back to the pole star, Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, Jesus Christ. Why you really do, you want to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ in the way that he has ordained once a week with his people. So, just remember that. We need to learn Christ constantly. Okay, that was our first point. Should we take a breather here? Pass around water? All right. Our second point after the group, which is the meek, is the promise. If you would, go all the way back with me to Matthew chapter 5. And again, let's get familiar with our verse once again. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's the promise at the end. They shall inherit the earth. Now recently, some professional psychiatrists looked at Jesus' words in this verse. They were looking to figure out What is happiness? What does happiness consist of? And can happiness be learned? In the February 2013 issue of Psychology Today, I borrowed it from Joey, one psychologist wrote, quote, Like many, I first heard about meekness as a schoolboy from the phrase, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It is one of the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount recorded in St. Matthew's Gospel. How... We all wondered, can those who do not stand up for themselves, the weak and feeble, inherit anything but their own destruction? It is a conundrum worth thinking about. Yeah, especially when you don't understand what it is. But you can see the the mind of the psychiatrist in good motive saying, how can we help 
people to live happy lives because what do they deal with all day long? They deal with people who are struggling with life-dominating problems. Well, the author went on to talk about how he agrees with Jesus that when people are meek, as he defined meek, they really are happy. Kind of connected to this word blessed is how he interpreted it. Happy are the meek. So he kind of saw that because people who are meek accept that the things in life that are out of their control are not to be stressed over. They're simply to be kind of submitted to, but with the idea, at least for us Christians, of use it redemptively. Obviously, non-Christians aren't thinking that. They're probably just thinking, how can I minimize my pain in this awful situation? But then the author, the psychiatrist, struggled with the last part of verse 5. They shall inherit the earth. And this is what he said. He said, the first thing to say is that no one inherits anything for keeps. We inherit stuff, and eventually then we just pass it on. In other words, he was saying in his brilliant psychiatrist way, well, we all die, and that's it. So, that's it. I don't know about you, but the thought of just dying, and that's it, doesn't really make me a blessed person. It makes me sad. You too? If death is all there is, and then we die, so... We kind of inherit what comes from mom and dad, and then we, we kind of stow away a little bit of stuff, and then we pass it on to our kids, and they inherit it, and that's what inheritance is? What life is that? I think that the psychiatrist misunderstands Jesus. He likes the Jesus who says, well, blessed are the meek. He just doesn't like the Jesus who says, for they shall inherit the earth. But if the meek don't inherit the earth, then we lose the whole beatitude. We lose the entire paradox that the meek, a people who demand none of their rights in this world, get the entire world, the entire earth, forever. See, here is the hope of the meek. We don't inherit some of the earth. We inherit all of the earth is inheriting the earth. It's the biggest goal in life. Ask Napoleon. Ask Alexander the Great. Ask Xerxes the Great. Ask the emperors. Ask the pharaohs. What is their greatest goal? To own the earth. And then there's us. Guys, what is your biggest goal in life? I know. It's the Patriots winning the Super Bowl next week. Am I right? And ladies, what is your biggest goal in life. It's to be adored, is it not, by that special guy? Well, good luck with that. He's watching the Super Bowl. (laughs) Our goals are so small. Read this again with me in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek people have a very large goal, do they not? Jesus could have said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit eternal life. True enough, but that promise, great as it is, doesn't fulfill the goal of being meek. Meekness is all about denying your earthly rights and your personal goals today for a forever inheritance of the earth and then beyond this earth, the new earth. So it's an eternal promise. Yes, the meek will have fellowship eternally with Christ and God. That shall never end. Yes, the meek shall enjoy endless fellowship with the millions of the redeemed from the ages, and that shall never end. 
Certainly, yes, the meek will have glorified bodies and they will have no more pain and they will have no more suffering, no more cancer, no more threats, no more tears, no more sorrows ever again. Yes, certainly that is true. But Jesus promises here the meek something tangible, something firm, something no one else gets. In fact, looking at verse 5, the word they is in the emphatic position in the original way that Jesus spoke it. So it reads this way, they and they alone will inherit the earth. This is then a featured, astounding promise coming from one who knows heaven and hell and all other things as well. And this promise then is based entirely on the veracity and trustability of Jesus Christ. He is saying that the people who are meek, who forego their earthly rights in this life in order for the purpose of redemption, Christ's work in them and their work in other people, they and they alone inherit the earth. They let go of everything in this life. They didn't demand that it had to be theirs, whether it was something tangible or whether it was something intangible like reputation, honor, praise. They gave it all up. And what does Jesus say? They shall inherit the earth. Well, beloved, if they're struggling with this a little bit, may I just remind you of Jesus Christ? He was the meekest one. And what does he inherit? He inherits the right hand of God in his humanity. He had it in his deity. Now he inherited it in his both deity, humanity, his union. He is the man, Christ Jesus. And as such, he will one day be given the title deed to the earth. And thereupon will set, up, set about reestablishing the earth for himself and for his people. And after a series of judgments, will bring the earth to its crushing knees. And all the peoples of the earth who survive that horrible future judgment time will be brought into his kingdom that will last on this planet for a thousand years. This is what I believe. I believe this is what Revelation teaches. If you believe something else, peace be to you. We'll find out. But Jesus receives it all. And then after this earth is put away and destroyed, after God rolls it up like a mantle and basically flips it away and creates a new heaven and a new earth that has never been tainted by any sin whatsoever, the meek inherit that because Jesus, it all belongs to him. This is what he earned by his meekness. And so therefore, it is only appropriate that those who learn from the school of Christ how to be meek also inherit what he inherits. So when he makes this promise in verse 5, he isn't dividing it in halves. Nor is he dividing it by the numbers of people that he's going to redeem, the meek. If there are 10 million or 30 million or 50 million or who knows how many that he redeemed by his work on the cross and draws to himself and makes these people meek in this life, does it mean, therefore, that he's going to take the earth and divide it into that many little pieces so everybody gets his own little tree and everybody gets his own little plot of ground? No. This is actually what he is saying. The entire earth will be yours. Anywhere you want to go on this world will be yours. The peoples of this earth will honor you wherever you go. They will yearn to serve you wherever you go. It will all be yours. They will lavish gifts upon you. And you, being the meek of this present evil age, 
And in the future, owning all the earth, you in return will receive their honors and their gifts, and you will take them with you and lay them in Jerusalem at the feet of your beloved Jesus Christ. Maybe we can see this a little bit better by taking a step back into the Old Testament. Would you like to go to one more passage too? Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 37 with me. Maybe you want to hold your finger in Matthew 5 if you wish. But I'd like you to go to Psalm 37 because, in fact, this verse that Jesus preaches here, Jesus teaches, is out of Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a series of encouragements to meek people. Now, let's kind of walk through a few of these. We can't do the whole psalm. We can just do a few verses together. But maybe this will give us a taste of the kind of encouragements that come our way when we're meek. For example, meekness is the strength to be wronged and not retaliate. Look at verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Now I want to suggest to you that the evildoers and the wrongdoers in verse 1 are those who do evil and wrong against you or maybe your family therefore doing wrong against you, or your community, and therefore doing wrong against you. So, meekness is strength that when you're wronged, you don't retaliate. Remember, they wither quickly like the grass and like fade like the green herb. That's a good thing to meditate upon when men are persecuting you or they're wronging you. Secondly, Meekness is demonstrated by waiting on the Lord. I think you all know this passage well. Psalm 37, 3. Look what he says here. Trust in the Lord and do good. This is the exact opposite counsel then of retaliation. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Here we go. This is the refrigerator magnet verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. This is what the meek person does in the midst of wrongdoing, in the midst of evil. He delights him or herself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What a wonderful Lord this is. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. How about this, verse 6? He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. That tells you that the context of this is you being mistreated, you being looked at as a sinner supreme, you being regarded as unrighteous, you absorb that. You take that. And you trust in the Lord and you do good and you dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. You delight in the Lord. God says that he'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. That's obviously the bright sun. In other words, he'll make it very clear that you were in the right. Here's another encouragement for the meek. It's refusing to respond in rage, which is what our hearts always tell us to do. But we're not going to trust in our hearts, right? Look at verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Don't fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Boy, does that burn anger inside when somebody gets away with sin. Man, that hurts. But God tells us, don't worry about it. Don't fret about it. Look what we want to do in verse 8. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Man, our hearts plot on the pillow at night. They plot. 
They think about things. We're driving in the car and we're plotting. And part of us, because we are regenerate people, we're in Christ, we're saying, no, I shouldn't be thinking this way. But, boy, it feels good to be thinking this way. And there's a battle going on inside. And I hope in the Lord and I hope for your soul's sake that your commitment to Christ is stronger than your desire for revenge and retaliation at that point. That you'll absorb the admonishment of verse 8. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evildoers. To evildoing. And look at verse 9. Evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Hey, that sounds familiar, does it not? And he tells you here in verse 10, Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You'll look carefully for his place. He'll not be there. But the humble, and here it is, this is where Jesus got it from, verse 11, but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. That's future tense, beloved. That's saying, Jesus just taking this verse right here and telling the people they will inherit the land. Now for the Israelite, they thought of themselves as the promise that God had given to Abraham about that portion of land. Jesus takes us as both Jew and Gentile, and expands it to the entire earth. That's the great beauty of Matthew 5.5. You can go back there, Matthew 5.5. So it gives you the entire earth. There is no idea that you will only have a portion of the earth. Rather, you shall have it to go wherever you wish and to do whatever you want. Maybe it will help you to look at things this way. In the Old Testament, the meek person was somebody who was so poor that they were just despised by everybody else because they had no land. To have land meant you were important. It meant that you had then rightly received what was supposed to be given to every male in Israel, a portion of the land. You deserved that by your tribal rights. It was a divine right. So if you had no land, you were kind of a nothing. You were a worthless person, so to speak, in Israel meaning they were just like Jesus, who owned no land, who died in poverty, a meek man. This is why Martin Luther called Christ the beggar king. Kings are never beggars, but this one was. Christ never enforced his rights, and ultimately he suffered all injustice. Why did he go so low? To redeem. The ultimate motivation behind meekness is redemption, to treat others and this world not judgmentally, but redemptively. Can anyone actually be happy and successful being meek? Let's just cover quickly the third point, and we'll kind of close with this. The condition, our first word of verse 5, blessed. Can anyone actually, come on, let's be real here, Ted, Bible guy, Come on, blessed are the meek, come on, right? Happy are the gentle, happy are the meek, come on, really? Listen, the answer has to be yes. Notice the second word of verse 5, blessed are, that's present tense. Remember, blessed means spiritually successful. Jesus isn't saying, well, if you're meek, you're going to be kind of happy and blessed way off in the future. He uses the present tense here, blessed are are the meek in this present time. 
So I ask you, can Matthew 5, 5 really be followed in real life? Are we just to lie down and let people walk all over us? It sure sounds like Jesus is teaching that we should be doormats, but that's, that's unfair to Jesus' words here. I think it misunderstands what he's saying. He's not telling us to allow ourselves to be treated as doormats. That's way too honorable for us. We aren't just doormats. We owe a debt of love to those who walk all over us. Didn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies? So shouldn't we, when we are walked on for Christ's sake and the foot comes upon us, shouldn't we also reach up and scrub the bottom of the shoe lest there's a little bit of dirt on top of it? I mean, it's way too honorable for us to be doormats, don't you think? We should make sure that everyone who walks upon us for Christ's sake has clean shoes when they're done. Oh, and let's not forget to say thank you to them, by the way, for treating us in this world the way Christ was treated in this world. So, I mean, is it fair to say that we should be treated as doormats? I think, I think that's, that's not fair at all. I think we should do far more than that. <laughs> now, how did Jesus get here? How did he get here to praising meekness? Well, back in verse 3, he talked about being poor in spirit, being a spiritual beggar, seeing yourself as having no spiritual goodness, no spiritual worth, and therefore you would there look at Christ, look at God, and ask Him for mercy, that He would come and He would give you mercy. And He certainly does, because the promise of verse 3 is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and therefore having been guaranteed the promise of heaven itself, therefore we are now free to be what verse 4 talks about, those who mourn. We no longer have to cover our sin. We can openly and privately and inwardly mourn to the depth of our actual sinfulness, which is very deep. So the beggar, he's the one who gets heaven. He's the one who's able to mourn. And the promise in verse 4 is that they shall be comforted. And we talked about that last week. They will always be comforted tomorrow, the next day, next week, next month, next year, for as long as they live and into eternity. The promise remains of verse 4. They shall be encouraged. So, therefore, having been thus encouraged with comfort that we receive through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we now enter into verse 5. Having been spiritually comforted, we have no more need to stand up for our rights, to stand up for our self-righteousness, but rather we become the meek because we don't have to demand our rights. We know that like Christ, the rewards for the meek are not in this world only, but in heaven and in the future earth. We receive constant inheritance. And it never ends. So in this, beloved, then, the Lord Jesus invites you into meekness, into his school, to take meekness, to approve of it this morning, to agree with his words and to disagree with everything that you've bought into from this world. That meekness is bad for your soul. Meekness will treat you badly. Meekness will make you vulnerable. Meekness will hurt you. On one level, I would have to agree with that, but not on the spiritual level. The spiritual level, the meek are the rich, and the self-willed are the poverty-stricken ones.
Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, then there is a fellowship to be had with you. There is a fellowship to be had with you, the meek God. Father, you are the one who hides yourself, and you are the one who sends forth your Son. And in him, and through him, we've been redeemed. I ask that you would enable us, Lord, to recalibrate our estimation of meekness from all the foolish things that this world and the devil wants us to believe to instead say within our hearts, there is no one meek like Jesus Christ. How beautiful and how productive is meekness. And so I pray, Father, for these, my beloved brothers and sisters, and for my heart most of all, to learn meekness.